counting down in five, four, three, two, and one. Mr. Ronnie Kernduff. Well, good uh, afternoon, Cameron. Welcome to the Cam Talk Show. Well, it's an experience, I've got to say. <laughs> Father dearest, welcome to the warehouse. Indeed. How do you feel knowing that your son is living with over 300 people in a warehouse complex in I'm North London? just so pleased it's not me. <laughs> but it's, you know, I can see the, uh, the attraction of it and I understand that. Well, thank you for coming. This is the first time you've seen where I live in London, Indeed, so yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very wary of the fact that, you know, you might be a bit, a bit shocked. You know, there's obviously a lot to, to look at. Is it anything like what you grew up like? Uh, I had a lot more space than this, Cameron. A lot more space. You did. Yeah. Well, you remember my studio? It was a lot bigger than this. But this is my studio. Well, I know. That. I can see that, but <laughs> it's uh, a bit like a sardine can, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but I remember you telling me the stories of you know just just put a little wall up here. Oh and, yes, absolutely. And do this. Yes, so you know, I, I hope you're you're proud of it. Well, yeah. look. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, this is a very special episode of Cam Talks because you're my dad. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for coming on. And I think we've got so much to talk about. Right, um, let's get on with it. But generally, the very first thing I want to know about is, have you ever heard of podcasts? I have, yes. Um, I don't quite understand them all, but I understand that uh, it's certainly part of, a big part of the me social media. Interesting. Is there any podcasts that you listen to daily or ever? Yours. I love that, Dad. You're my number one fan. Thank you very much. But it's not unlike, you know, the radio shows and the type of stuff that you used to do, right? Um, no, I don't think we actually did any of this sort of stuff. Uh, we, I did a lot of uh, background filming, uh, corporate filming, corporate drama we did uh, quite a bit of, but not, not podcasts like this. We had no facility to get this out into the media like you guys have today. It just didn't exist in my day. That's it. You could record all you wanted, but it would just be a bunch of tapes sat in the, in the corner exactly. of your office. <laughs> right across racks and racks of, <laughs> of uh, big one-inch tape. So. I absolutely love it. So look, obviously, I'm a filmmaker slash video producer slash marketing person, all, all sorts of names you could uh, attribute to my my job. Um, what is it that you did? You know, what Give us your, your quick story for those people that don't know who my dad is. Well, um, I left Ireland um, at the age of 20 um, on my way to Australia to seek my fortune. Um, unfortunately, that didn't quite happen. And I left with a friend of mine with a guitar to sing our way to Australia. <laughs> and uh, it was going to take six months to get there. And we had all the um, various um, visas and, and uh, injections up the bottom and all that sort of stuff. And it was going to be exactly six months to get down to Australia. And so we left Fon Farewell from Belfast. And the only gig we had was in Glasgow. And so we played the gig in Glasgow and didn't get very much money for it. And somebody said, have you ever played Nakhtar Mukti? And we went, no, we're off to Nakhtar Mukti. And then somebody would say, have you ever played in Dundee? No, we're off to Dundee then. And then before we knew it, it was one year later and we have arrived in London. So the six months is way out the door. And by that time, we haven't got very much money, but we've had an absolute ball performing all over the UK in various clubs, folk clubs, working man's clubs, theatres, anything just to get just to get recognised. And the interesting thing was we had an old Dormobile van um, that we made into a little house, as it were, with a double bed and a little cooker and all of that sort of stuff. Now, the interesting thing is, for during all of that time, 
I doubt we slept in that more than seven nights because wherever we appeared, people would say, oh, where are you staying? We said, well, we've got a van outside. Oh, good Lord, no, 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 come and stay with us. And we stayed with some of the most wonderful people up and down the country. And, of course, next morning, a big breakfast, and away we would go in our little van to the next gig. Incredible. And so when did you actually hit the rock? The rock we know as Alderney. As Alderney. Well, many years go by, and, in fact, my first uh, marriage was sort of prior to all of that. And during my first marriage, um, I was queuing up uh, to buy a house. And this was many years ago. And in fact, it was 1971. And in those days, and this was in northwest London, you could buy a house in London for like six grand. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, that was Jesus. like a three-bedroom house. You could buy them. Trouble was that you'd go in and you'd put an offer in of, say, the six grand. And somebody would come along and gazump you. That was the big word in those days. And it wouldn't gazump you by like a thousand quid. It'd like be like a hundred quid. And that made all the difference. You, you, you just go, I can't afford that. You know, we just, so we were forever being gazumped. And so it ended up that there was a new development being built on the old Hendon RAF aerodrome, which had all been cleared. And there's a new development going in there. And so this was February. And the development w wasn't going to be uh, ready until the September so at the, at the February, I'm on my way home, uh, and I pop into the estate agent on a Saturday night, and I say to the estate agent, we're very keen to buy one of these houses. What is the cheapest one? And he said, £10,000. Wow. And I nearly fell off my chair. Well, in fact, in a good way? In a good way. Well, no. Where we were going to get ten grand from, no idea. Absolutely no idea. But you thought, oh, what the hell, we'll do it. Yes. How much is that today, like? Oh, 50, 100 grand? Uh, <laughs> Inflation goes up, a right? A lot more. Let's just say it's a lot well. more. A lot more. Um, anyway, so it ended up, I said to this guy, this is a Saturday night, and he's opening up on first thing Monday morning, first come, first served, and it's going to be on a big plan on his desk. And I said, uh, what time do you open? He said, 9 o'clock. Oh, well, I'll be here about quarter to 9. And he says, I think you better make it a bit earlier than that. And I said, why is that? He said, because that lady over there, and I looked around, and I hadn't noticed this lady sitting in the porch of this estate agent in a deck chair. And she turned out to be a lady whose husband then became our great friends, uh, whose mother lived in Alderney. So by the time I got back to my flat and got a few bits and pieces together, we get back to find there's another couple there, then us. And it ended up, we slept on, this, on the street on the Saturday night and the Sunday night. All the national press were there. Um, it was unbelievable. We had to get the police in because on the Monday morning, there were only going to be 50 houses up for sale and 250 people had been camping out in the street. Wow. For two nights in the freezing cold in February. Wow. And uh, that's what we did. So during the process of sleeping on the pavement, you know, this chap, Don, Don Williamson, his lovely wife, Sally, what do you do? All the usual stuff. And he said, my mum lives in Alderney. Now, I'd spent a great deal of time on the Isle of Arran in Scotland. So the moment I heard about this little island, I thought, ooh, that sounds right up my street. And indeed, the very following year, 1972, we did in fact go to Alderney. And I remember we stayed, this was with my first wife, Pat, we stayed in the Grand Hotel. And we didn't know it was Alderney week. It happened to be in August. And on the Monday morning, um, we're having breakfast in the Grand Hotel. And Ray Parkin comes over to our table and said, today is our cavalcade day. Would you good people like to be our judges? 
And we said, well, yeah, of course it will, you know. And as they say, the rest is history. Wow, incredible. I didn't actually know that's how, that's how you first heard about Oldney. Because mm. uh, obviously most, for most of me and my friends, Oldney's just always been part of our lives, but you actually had to find it. Well, yes, absolutely. And of course, the moment you find it, you fall in love with the place. I certainly did. And that was that. I thought, oof, yeah, I love this place. Like I said, it was very like the Isle of Arran in Scotland. And that's where we spent a lot of um, times during my scouting days. And we'd be over there twice a year for, oh... 15, 15 years. So you like the outdoors? You you like a close uh, pub slash restaurant? You like, uh, you know, like good scenes? You like the beach? You like the the, the golfing? How many years ago was it that you realised that Oldney was going to be, you know, the place you were going to retire to? When was it in my life that you decided that actually we're going to stay here and you kids can stay there. That was way before you were born. Really? Wow, it was a done deal. It was a done deal, certainly from from my perspective. And when your mum arrived, it was a fantastic uh, situation because it was love me, love Alderney, you know. And if if your mum, dear Leslie, had said, uh, no, I don't like Alderney, I'd have had to say, well, fond farewell and have a wonderful life. You're just going to sack mum in? Yes. What? Well, that's the way it works. You know how Alderney works. Of course, I mean, Alderney of course. Is, yeah, it's like the Marmite thing, isn't it? But yeah. thankfully, Leslie fell in love with it. Um, and that was that. And we actually got married in our little cottage, which we bought in the, uh, way, be- way before we got married. And uh, we still have that little cottage until today. So, you know. Incredible. I mean, it's. I don't think many people ever consider their life's sort of purpose to find a place like Alderney. But now that I've grown up, you know, with Olden mm. in my life, it feels obvious that one of the things you want to do in life is to find where you want to settle. You know, and I don't know whether or not I will live in Oldney. Um Well, not at, not at this age, of course. Of course, you wouldn't. I mean, the, you've got the, the world as your oyster at the moment. But as you get older, you know, um and uh, the bottom line is, on the basis that you don't get run over by a trolley bus, you will live to a grand old age. And I happen to be seventy-three at the moment, and. You know, if I said to you, can you imagine yourself at 73, you'd go, no, of course I can't. Well, in time, on the basis that you will grow old, and then life changes and your decision-making changes about where you're going to go. You might go all around the world and travel and all the rest of it and do all that and get it out of your system and maybe come back and settle here. But you could just settle in Canada, Australia, America, wherever. So it's where you feel comfortable with. And when I find Alderney, that was what I felt. And although I worked in London in uh, production and so on, it, it it was always in the back of my mind that, that Alderney was, you know, that's where your heart is. And so you spend all the time uh, in in Alderney, any downtime you have. I mean, I did, we didn't go to Spain and Mallorca and all that nonsense. We just went to Alderney. No, I remember. I remember the one, the one holiday we did go to was Tenerife. Oh, well, that was a dreadful place. It was a dreadful place, yes, wasn't it? Unfortunately, I didn't have a big enough gut then. And <laughs> certainly not enough tattoos. Um, and the Kiss Me Quick Hat Brigade were all there. So yeah, I yeah. hated that. I hated that. It, I mean, it sounds like you're a planner. But I have to say, as you look back at your life, I don't know how much most of it was planned. So do you believe in, in, in heavy planning? and Well, sticking to in, the, uh, in the early days, you see, when you make these decisions, like I say, I left um, um, Northern Ireland when I was 20. So, uh, of course, there's no proper planning of decision-making there. Away you go and let's see what happens. But as you get older and you settle down and you get married, and I was always one for, you know, uh, goal-setting, 
So what are you, what are you trying to achieve? And uh, I remember uh, your mum and I would always have a written goal that would be on the fridge. And the reason it's there is because you're seeing it every day and that gives you a purpose. Now, that's not to say you're going to get to the goal, but the goal is there. And when you do achieve that, by Joe, the satisfaction you get when, when you've actually achieved that. And your mum and I had this thing that we're going to buy a house in Alderley and that would be on the fridge. Uh, our goal would be at some stage we'll buy a house. And two years later, we had the house. Jesus, Dad, you should write a book. You know, the <laughs> amount of people that, that ponder how to set yeah. goals and blah. Yeah, yeah. The secret, folks, is to stick it yeah. on your fridge. Yes, it. Exactly. Jesus. Yeah, simple. That's amazing. That so, really is amazing because, yeah, you yeah. know, we now live in a generation where everyone's yeah. like hyper aware and everyone wants to be personal, yeah. personally developed yeah, and yeah. they want to like do stick on your fridge. Exactly. It's a shame, actually. I had a bloody big mirror up here earlier on before yeah, it, 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 just it, it just collapsed <laughs> earlier. Um, but that, that has some of mine and Nina's goals written yeah, on the mirror, yeah, you know, so yeah, it is um, visualizing yeah. and being able to just see Absolutely. it every day is yeah, really absolutely. important. And so tell me, um, you know, I listen to a lot of books uh, every single week. I'm listening to books and I'm very lucky to feel that I can just like, you know, soak mm. the knowledge for other people. Where did you learn all of your your kind of skills from? Just from experience. I was, ne I was never terribly uh, academic. I left school when I was 15, and I was in full-time work before I was 16. Wow. In full-time work. And I worked for a while in North Ireland, and I became a window dresser in a big department store. And that was great fun, and that was probably where I got all the artistic bit from. Uh, but it was that, and music were the, the key things to me. And um, you know, the, the music just went on for years and years and years. And for those people that still listen, I'm still happy to do it. Mm, absolutely. And of course, you used to play a lot in London, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. tell me, what was the scene like in London back then? Well, in the very early days, um, I ended up running two of the most successful folk clubs in London. And we're now back in the very um, late uh, 60s and early 70s. Wow. And in those days, I can tell you, there was something like 80 plus clubs in London alone folk scene was huge and clubs were all over the country and this is where i met lots of the great old guys who became my great mates like jasper carrot and um, mike harding billy connolly um, all of these guys and we didn't have tuppence to rub together you know but it was absolutely a great time where all these folk singers got together and to this day we're still friends my old mate richard digens you know he's been to all a few times and I brought many other people over. So it becomes like a family thing, you know, and you just know all, all, all the mates and, you know, all the songs and all that sort of stuff. So where's the folk gone, Dad? Well, unfortunately, like, you know, like all things, you know, time changes everything, you know, and the music scene changes forever. You know, it's a bit like saying way back then, well, where's the punk rock, you know, well... It wasn't there because it wasn't there, but you know, and the folk music was, and then it all moved, and it, the whole folk scene died down, and uh, and so so did the clubs. But I must tell you an interesting little little scenario. We had a great uh, Irish guy called Noel Murphy, and he was the, he was the equivalent to Max Boyce in uh, Wales. He was the equivalent of that in Ireland. Huge, great guy, big, big ginger beard, great mate of mine. And he had a big Irish southern accent. Oh, Jesus, all this sort of stuff, you know. And he put a, a folk band together. And the folk band was called Draft Porridge. 
right? <laughs> what a great name for a folk band, you know, Draft Porridge. Anyway, so uh, one night we're all playing there, and this um, uh, folk club was in Bayswater, and it was called the Holy Ground Folk Club. N- no religious connotations. The Holy Ground is where they grow the pochine in Ireland, and mm. that's where, where the name came from. Anyway, so they're up on the stage singing, and the next thing was, in comes this suit, you know, and everybody looks and thinks, ooh. And, of course, you, in those days, there used to be scouts going around looking for talent and all the rest of it. And Noel Murphy had a banjo player who was the most astonishing banjo player you could ever see. And his name was Davy Johnson, right? And this uh, scout looks at him and he goes, there is talent. And the next thing, he's whisked away and he's early. he leaves the folk band and that's it. And to this day, he is still the lead guitarist for Elton John. Old Elton. Yep. Bloody So oh. the big tall guy with the blonde hair, Davy Johnson, that's the man that was in the folk club uh, in the early 70s. Wow, so it started all yeah. that time ago, uh, yeah, yeah. back when yeah. scouts were literally having to yeah. walk, go into the venues. Well, they did. They did. Yeah. And many, many names got, got called. Well, that's, you know, like some Billy Connolly and Jasper Carrot, all these guys all got those sort of opportunities. Mm. And, of course, in those days, you see, there were plenty of places to perform. And I do remember Billy Connolly always saying that when he first started television, he hated it because television just gobbles up your material. So you do an hour on television, you think, crikey, where am I going to get another hour of material from? Whereas in the clubs, because of the, the numbers are quite small, you can repeat that material over and over and over again. Interesting. And yeah. of course, Billy's gone on to well, he's a big, big he, movie he, actor. He's and... become an absolute legend. Yeah, absolutely. Legend. And I'm so delighted that uh, um, I knew him. He wouldn't know me from a shifting spanner. <laughs> but in, in our days, we knew each other. And in fact, I've still got my, my um, um, foot club book, which says uh, Billy Connolly and the fee, £15 or 75% of the door, <laughs> whichever is the greater. <laughs> 15 quid for a 15 night 15 quid yeah. I love it. it oh wow yeah. and of course so I don't know whether it, it's, it feels this way but like so music culture is now a lot more just I mean you, you must have seen Rocket Man, the new Elton John film um, well, I haven't actually uh, I'm, I've, I've heard about it yeah. but seeing where musicians from came in in those days it, music wasn't accessible it wasn't like you just put, put on a new tune you yeah. had to kind of like live and experience these different moments was there ever someone that you watched as a kid that was a guitarist or no, I, um yeah i mean the, what was fantastic certainly in all the folk days was the range of talent was extraordinary and the talent was out there it was just amazing and the thing that I find these days is when you look back now to the, uh, some of the lyrics of the old songs, you know, the 60s and 70s and so on. Oh, Bob Dylan. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, Blown in the they, wind. they live, live forever, you see. And, and I, used to, I used to wonder about, crikey, how, how did somebody write that song? I, where did all that come from? You know, but, you know I, I did a little bit of writing, but... And I did a few telly bits, but nothing. Well, really. let's let, let's move on to that, and obviously because um, you know, as my father, I figured that you know, you could give us some some really good insight into you know, forget all the cameras, forget all the lights, forget all of the technical stuff, because as a storyteller, you've always put the performance first. You know, absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about where your love for storytelling came from. Well, it it, it is about the performance and. Uh, you know, even if somebody's telling a joke, to me, it, it ha- 
it has to take the listener to get into his imagination, to take this story forward, whatever the joke is or whatever the story is. And so the performance is everything. And I do remember many, many times that, in particularly in the folk clubs, we would have open nights and lots of people would come and sing and there'd be some guy or some girl, whatever, and they'd sit there and they would be fantastic on the guitar. And then 29 verses later, you're going, oh, my God, when's this going to stop? You know, And what they would be doing, they would be playing to themselves. And a lot of it was their own music, and some of it was very good. But you weren't performing to the paying audience. They're the ones that have come to be entertained, not to see you sitting, maybe a duo, playing to each other. So you've got, it's the performance getting out there to the audience and dragging the audience into your imagination so that they can follow whatever you're trying to do in terms of a story. I love it. And obviously this has kind of come in two parts, really. You know, you as a professional filmmaker, you're making adverts. Um, I mean, were they even called adverts back then? Commercials? Oh, yes. Commercials. Like, yeah, I mean, like, tell me a little bit more about that, because I imagine that most of the equipment was like the size of a massive, like, sofa. Huge, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, these days, your cameras and everything at the moment, you know, f- you know we'd, we'd still be setting up, you know, it would take <laughs> us two or three hours just to set the damn thing up, you know. But uh, it, it was a whole different ball game in those days. And I was lucky enough, I, I had a contract with um, United Artists, who were the biggest cable suppliers. Now, one of the that extraordinary things that used to happen way back in those days, that these big companies like United Artists would go along and do a deal with the local authority. And they would say, oh, we want to d- dig up every road uh, in, in, your, in your local um, authority. And we want to put a cable into every, every house. So the diggers would come right down the road, dig up the road, and dig up the the, the pathway into somebody's house, and that was called cable cable television, and that was superseded by the um, all the digital stuff. But that's how it was, and I was lucky enough to get a contract with uh, United Artists to do all the commercial work, and we worked for them for years. We were churning out, we were churning out oh twenty a week. Oh, wow. non-stop, non-stop. And tell me, was the audition process for the the, the talent, was it as uh, simple as it is today, you know, well, just kind of emails? Just going back to this storytelling, what, when I first started with United they all the stuff was uh, very bland. It would have a, uh, a still of an Indian restaurant, please come to the Indian restaurant or whatever, you know. And I used to think, oh, goodness. and I had a, a bunch of people, great, talented actors and writers and all the rest of it almost like what you've got here now and we were very keen to get into the um, more dramatic and more creative side of an advert and we would take a 30 second advert uh, for example for a uh, for a local garage and we would have actors in there and I remember one uh, and the garage was called uh, Watson and so we came up with this idea about Sherlock Holmes and Watson. <laughs> and we had about four actors in this thing. And again, only 30 seconds. And all these guys, just we loved all this stuff. And of course, United Artists were, wow, this is great. And the clients were over the moon because, you know, rather than just having a photograph in your, the, the name of your company across it, you know. That's it. They were getting something very special. And of course, I've seen a lot of your, your early work and uh, I'm amazed to see some of the access that you've been able to achieve over the years um, to some of the biggest landmarks in London. I mean, I couldn't, uh, you know, go and walk up Big Ben today. I couldn't go and stand up on the roof of Piccadilly today. Tell me, how did you get the shot? I, uh, the, the gentleman sat on in Piccadilly Circus 
the big billboards, the advertising yes. that goes on. You placed an actor sitting on top of one of those billboards. Yes, he sat in the, uh, at the top of the Haymarket, where was the biggest illuminated uh, um, uh, sign at the time. What was he? Um, was he strapped in? Did he? Oh yes, we had we had professional, um, you know, um, stunt men up there to look after him. And I remember the auditioning for that, where I said to the guy, because we did it all in mime, that particular one. And so I was looking for a mime artist, and one of the things was must must not be scared of heights. You know? <laughs> and as it happened, the guy that I used had done a little bit of trapeze work, and of course he loved the idea. And uh, so what I had to do the fi- the final shot was this mime artist sitting on the top um, of this huge big illuminated sign uh, in Piccadilly, and I've got five cameras all around the place and different buildings and on the ground, and I got all the permission for it and all the rest of it. The only problem was that uh, was the light. And the best light was about just after five o'clock in the evening. That was the best light. But of course, rush hour. And this guy had a white face with two big red, and he was doing all the mime, all the mime bits. So he's sitting on top, doing all, you know, pointing to the sign and all the rest of it. And of course, people would look up and they think, Someone's going to jump. Someone's going to jump. Well, the next thing was, and I'm in another building across the street, and I looked down Haymarket, and all I could see is all these policemen ru- running up the Haymarket. And the next thing, there's about four fire engines, ambulances, police cars all over the place. And by the time we come back down on, onto Piccadilly Circus, there's this very irate policeman with lots of badges and things. Who the f- is in charge around here? And I said, I am, sir. <laughs> And uh, I showed him my permit. He just tore it up. He said, this, this is not worth anything. Oh, I'm so sorry. Wow. So I, I did wing it a bit. And um, often my uh, little motto of uh, better to ask uh, uh, for redemption than for permission. I like that. And I believe I've taken that on board myself, actually, um, yeah. which, you know, yeah. today I don't think I could get away with. No, there's a lot of things. I mean, th- these days y- you guys have got much more restrictions than we ever had. We, we could do all manner of things. And generally speaking, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big issue. But you can understand now with with the security being what it is, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, look, let's let's move on then. So obviously, um, so as a filmmaker, um, you went to Oldney and you kind of started performing. Uh, mm. Tell me a little something about Oldney Week. Well, Where did it, it all start? Uh, like I say, when Ray Park in, in, invited us on the very uh, first occasion we were there, um, it led on from that. And then the following year, I did a little bit of theatre stuff and stage work, whatever. And it just grew and grew and grew. And it ended up that I, I was totally involved with Olney Week, with Ray. He'd already been doing it for about 10 or 12 years. And so Ray and I did nearly 15 years together. And in the end, he did 27. And in terms of what I've been involved with, I've done 38 years with Ray, uh, involved one way or another, and then 10 years up, uh, running it completely, and I'm at the helm with a great team of people, um, Lee and... Uh, Alona and so on. Oh, I remember. I mean, I Alex. I grew up around around the crew, around the yeah. team. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't yeah. be long after the first old new week that you'd be preparing for the second one. Well, yeah, and and it, it was all about, uh, um, you know, it evolved. It was getting bigger and more professional and all the rest of it. And then we, you know, Ray had brought over the Alderney blowers. Uh, that became an essential part of Alderney week, which today would we, I wouldn't be half the 
weekend was would be without without the blowers and we love them very much and everybody does so yeah and it was always a question of bringing in the team again talent and letting people perform and the homegrown issue to me is very important um you see if you look at some of the festivals today they're absolutely brilliant but what, why wouldn't they be because you're bringing in the best bands and all the rest of it but what, what Alderney Week really has been, certainly when I was running it, was homegrown. The majority of it was homegrown. So it was, you know, somebody who's the butcher one day, you know, is now on the stage or whatever. So we would get lots of We'd get the firemen in. You know, the firemen were doing um, uh, um, the, the full Monty and all this. <laughs> I sort remember of stuff, that. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was engaging all these people. And at first they would go, oh, good Lord, I don't want to do that. Oh. No, no, I don't want to do that. And then they'd get into it, and they just loved it. And it, there were other things where we'd have, you know, um, the R and the Lie Boys dressed up as as ballet dancers. <laughs> I'm not getting into a tutu. And then after a while, oh, this is quite nice, you know. And away, and it, it was all about having fun, enjoying it, and performing. And everybody's a performer. Absolutely. And this is the thing, right? So every Wednesday um, throughout Old New Week was Gala Night. Yep. Uh, explain what Gala Night is. Well, Gala Night is a big variety show um, and it has to have spectacle. So I would spend uh, literally weeks making a prop that was going to be seen for maybe 30 <laughs> seconds or a minute, whatever. And it had to be a spectacle. And when I think of what we, we did over the years, there were some amazing spectacle and spectaculars um i remember the the um uh, the turn of the the century the 2000 um when the you know we, all the computers were going to fold up and all that sort of stuff and i came up with this idea of having this enormous banner with 2000 on it and the alderney lion and all the and this thing was 60 foot wide and about 40 feet deep and that rolled off the top of the island hall and everybody went absolutely bizarre, wow. you know. And things like, you know, we've had the, the, the SAS in. What? Um, yes, we, we, we had a situation where it was the French Revolution, and there were four people who were um, taken from the island, uh, all the local people, people like Jenny Rowley, and um, uh, I've forgotten, um, there was a doctor involved. Anyway, the idea was they were going to be tried, and I'd made this huge, big uh, guillotine, and uh, I was Napoleon, and I'm sort of doing the MC bit. And what about the charge for this person? And they'd have a defence. But the audience would all go, no, off with their head, Ooh. off with their head, you know. And I remember saying to Ray, but, okay, they're all guilty now, and we've got this bloody big gear team. We've got, you know, well, we can't really... And I did the bit with the, with the um, cabbage and all that. I said, well, we can't have people laying down, you know. Could we have, who could rescue them? And uh, we thought, you know, oh, maybe Doddy, Doddy the lighthouse keeper, he could be the, the Scarlet Pimpernickel. And there we are, now that's not going to work. And Ray happened to say, well, I've, I've got a contact in the SAS. And so he <laughs> phones this guy in the SAS. And the next thing was, they put together a complete exercise. And on the, uh, the, the night before the show, right, over comes this big helicopter. And uh, four... John Smith, they're all called John Smith, <laughs> SAS guys, come out, and they say to me, what do you want? And I took them up into the parapet of the Island Hall, and I said, I want you to abseil over the, over the top of the parapet, 
and come down to Essen slowly, get on the onto the stage and rescue these four people. And they went, okay, um, and they kicked a bit of the parapet in the island hall, and a few bricks fell out. They went, yeah, we'll get a peat on in here. Don't worry, it'll be all right. And then they said, listen, when's the show? I said, well, it, um, it's actually t- um, tonight. Um, and what time do you want us? I said, well, the show starts about eight, and I've worked it out that it's going to be about ten to nine. And they all went, oh, t- t- 21, 21. Synchronizing <laughs> watches now. And I go, oh, that's 21, 21 for 50. <laughs> so it's at 10 to 9. And right on the dot, over they come. I hadn't seen them the rest of the day. I didn't see them at all. The show starts. We do all the bits. We do all the trials. They're all fine guilty. Wow. Then over the top, over they come. And that was the sort of spectacle that we would do. And then right? what happened to them? Then they just, off they went. Um, that mo- next morning, six o'clock, chug, 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 they've all gone. Wow. And a week or so later, letter from the whoever, with the MOD or whatever, operation, whatever it was called, 100% successful. <laughs> so they used it, they used it as a training exercise. There so you go. So, I mean, Oldney is, is no stranger to strange things. Right? No, yeah, no, strange things. Um, yeah. People with, with high profiles. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that mm. kind of happens in mm. this little island. Uh, I guess for me, it's, it's an island that I've kind of grown up as, as part of my life. You know, very different to you. I think that with, with yourself, it's like yeah. maybe your friends, the people that you know uh, in Alderney have kind of grown up with you. Yep. Whereas I've seen all generations, you know, oh, yeah. starting yeah. with my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the things that I've learned growing up has come from seeing people uh, like yourselves and mum in Alderney mm. uh, in a very social situation. Am I right in saying that it's a little bit of a boozy island? Uh, that depends on how social you want to get. Well, this is a really good point because um, socialising in yeah, the 21st it, century, particularly in London right now, yes. I mean, there's probably a lot of people listening to this yeah. who are sat in their room by themselves on yeah. their phone, f- scrolling away and flicking and flicking and flicking. And Alderney has this incredible, uh, it's almost like a natural built-in time watch where well, you know what, where to go yeah. at what time. And, yeah, there's a great deal of drinking done, obviously, but... Uh, that's down to you, um, and many, many of my mates, and I'm one of them. We we do a, a, either a four three or a five two, where you don't drink for two or three days. Oh no, look, or, I'm you know, I'm absolutely not hitting yeah. on the drinking. Actually, no. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage it because well, actually, what what I see the difference in our generations yeah. now is that our generation drink to get drunk. You know, and oh, and, no, and when no, I see no, you guys no, in Oldney, no, it's no. it's you drink because yeah. you're socializing. Yeah. The act of socializing in Oldney to me is it's, phenomenal. It's the thread that joins the, the friendships together. Mm. Um, and um, what is lovely about Alderney is that that friendship uh, is truly friendship. It's, it's not like we're in London, it's acquaintances and all that sort of stuff. Now, the interesting thing I'm, I find as I get older, I think the pressures of younger generation, and uh, I would advocate to many, many people, before you go out and charge around the world and by all means do all of that if you want to, but there's a lifestyle in Alderney that is unique and hard to understand, but it, that lifestyle brings the biggest enjoyment that you could ever imagine. Um, it's, it is unique. Uh, what's it about? Sometimes you don't know. You you know you go for a walk. You see the you see the beauty of the island, and okay, we've got you know German for um, German fortifications and all the rest of it. But in terms of of 
what you see as an island, that's your, that's your lot. And thankfully, just about everybody on, island, and on the island thinks exactly the same. That doesn't mean to say you know everybody. So what the lovely thing is all these people have got this love for this extraordinary little island. Mm. And no matter where you go in the world, you usually end up bumping into somebody who's been to Waldenby or lives in Waldenby or whatever. You know, it's extraordinary. It's amazing. It's the yeah. centre of the world, really. Um, but look, we all love it so much, but there's, there's problems, right? Well, yes. I mean, we, currently we have huge transportation problems. Um, and we, we, there's also... Uh, <laughs> Problems is the wrong word. It's unique in that the, the government situation, uh, unlike the UK, there's no party pol political um, um, situation there. It's 10 states members, effectively with 10, 10 different, different ideologies, uh, different, different backgrounds, policies. experiences. And sometimes it's very difficult for, for the 10 people to agree. So we're going through a, a real tough time. But a lot of people in Oldham have seen these before. Um, the good news is the island is seeing investment that we, have, we haven't seen for many, many years. And that is very encouraging. Now, we just have to get the transport situation sorted. And I'm convinced that that will get sorted in its own time through demand and more people coming and all of that sort of stuff. And this is what I'm saying about uh, people thinking about changing their lifestyle. Um, uh, you can. I mean, uh, we, there's just a young couple have arrived in the last month or so, and he's running an IT business, and he says, "Brilliant," and he's got two young kids, and you know, and he see he sees it instead of the big mad rush. I mean, I've just come today, you know, landed in Southampton this morning, train up here, walk into Waterloo, you go, "Oh my goodness, what?" You know. <laughs> And every and this busy, busy, buzzy bush, you know, and you just go, which is great, you know. When you, I mean, I lived in London for thirty years, so I know what it's like. But like I say, as you get older, and I think maybe more youngsters these days are thinking about their longer, because of their parents, because you know, uh, your generation has had a, a, a lot more time with your parents than we ever did, and that's fantastic. That is brilliant. And this is what I'm saying. So you you see what we're doing and learn from that. Uh, whereas we were sort of left, you know, we would never we would never socialise with our parents. Good lord, no. Well, you've definitely been good role models. Yeah. Uh, I learned how to uh, how to get out of the Georgian at eight years old uh, after I was left there in the evening. Uh, but it's fine because I can stand on 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 boxes and and undoor, and and I remember knocking on the door and yeah. you you answered and you just greeted me home at, at four a.m. in the morning. <laughs> no, I mean Oldney has this incredible, um, you know, it's, it's got it's got a vibe about it. Mm. It gives all the young people on the island the confidence to speak to old people. It gives the old people yes, the confidence absolutely. to to live out yeah. whatever dream they want to mm. do. And maybe this is the thing is that in there's a this feeling in London and and particular with with people in my sort of circles is if you're not getting paid for the job don't do it or don't work hard at it and they've got this really good kind of feeling that anything that kind of happens in old knee is done for the community instead of the money or the, the there is a is. huge community spirit in old knee and i think per capita it is one of the highest uh, contributions to charities uh, that you probably get in europe i would have thought it is, from that point of view, it is absolutely unique. And probably one of the healthiest places for your mind. Uh, you know, I have to say that, you know, you're, good, you're looking good. You're looking very good, you know. Well, also, 
the air in Alderney, as we know, I mean, you see at night time, you see stars that you'll never, you'll never see in Ald or in London. And I mean, even sitting on the tube today, you know, you know, no one's smoking, obviously, but it's still, you know, and there's the smell of the tube trains, and 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 you think, oh, it's just the pollution must be huge in London, huge. Whereas in Alderney, you just walk out every day. That's it. That's it. And why do you call it billionaires' golf? Then what's what's the? Well, because there's not many people play there, and <laughs> we have the most wonderful scenes on the on the island. It's an open course. It's an open course. I love it. And of course, um, you know, so there's Oldney, there's Guernsey, there's Jersey, uh, Sark, and Herm. Mm. Have you been to the other islands? Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so to what's special then about <coughs> Oldney um, that the other ones kind of don't have? Space, and the lack of it. Um, I'll tell you a very interesting story about um, the bird watching in Alderney is, has really taken off big time and I bumped into a bird watcher I'm not particularly into birds but I met this guy and he said what is unique about Alderney in terms of the bird watchers is because the land mass is so small it's big enough for birds to migrate to and from and because it's so small you see more birds than even you see in Guernsey or Jersey because there's parts of the island you can stand there and virtually look around the whole and see nothing but sea yeah yeah it's amazing <clears throat> so yeah that's that's a big plus and of course so before we <coughs> kind of uh leave the the old sort of theme here mum is obviously uh, a she's worked all her life in the care industry as of as a view um, but yeah. we'll, we'll talk about it in a second uh, but more recently mum was saying that the uh, the whole island is kind of becoming a dementia free zone uh, is this because of the the age the ever aging population are you just setting yourselves up right now you know and ignoring all the young people and say yeah, we need these we need the stair lifts stair lift up Bray Road please you know, I mean, it's an incredibly friendly island for, for yeah, older people. I think, I, I think there's a, a lot of awareness of mental illness these days. And <clears throat> certainly you guys are probably getting more of it than we ever did. Um, it was sort of thing that was brushed under the carpet, you know. But it has become a big, big thing. And, and Alderney, because of its aging population, has to face that head on. And I've got to tell you, the strides that have been made in Alderney, it'd be great if the, half of that was over here, you know. And why is that? Is that because you've got people on the island who are, are experts in it, or is it just people wanting to gain progress? It's a combination of both. Um, we've got you know a lot of experience, your mum, for example, and many, many volunteers are very, very keen to. And why wouldn't you want to help help old, older people? Crikey, you know, they've seen us through the last couple of world wars you know and i don't want to get into that it's a very seems to be a very hot potato at the moment <laughs> but it's interesting because the mentality of someone who lives in oldney is so much more community focused than anyone here you mm. know i mean i i almost find it a little bit because i was living in manchester for eight years yeah. so manchester's mm. a lot more friendly mm. people kind of look out for each other mm. whereas in london it's you know totally different ball game and yeah. uh you know i think that's probably one of the reasons why i love oldney but you you know before kind of uh, moving to oldney full time your mum ran a care home yep you know, tell years. me tell me what it was like uh <laughs> running a, an elderly person's care home. fantastic absolutely fair. and it, you know people used to say to me and i was in television production at the time and people said to me you're mad what are you going into this business for and it was a combination. Obviously, you've got to earn a living, and you guys were important uh, uh, as part of our criteria of what do, do we want to stay in London. And we'd done 30-odd years in London, and we could see, oh, the, 
this is just not sitting comfortably with us. So it was a complete change of, of career. And obviously because Leslie, with her background in nursing and, you know, my business uh, acumen, that's what put the team together. But I have to say, um, and again, back to this goal setting, we, we when we bought the care home, um, it needed a lot of TLC. And again, our goal was within two years, this is what we need to do. And that's exactly what we did, almost to the day. And from then on in, things got easier because you were then putting in, we were one of the first care homes to bring in formal training. And way back, this 20 odd years ago, um, ironically, we were screaming at the government for money then. And here we are 20 odd years later, still screaming for money. And unfortunately, it's not a sexy um, issue. It's way down the pecking order, although it is beginning to sort of um, come home to roost, you know. But it was a, a wonderful experience. And I'm, I'm sure you guys, um, you and Emily, you had a great experience with, you know, we always used to say you've got 22 mo- uh, grannies and granddads. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. It was yeah. it so was part of it, it was part it. of the, you know, <clears throat> the, the experience of being in, a, in a, it's the same community feeling. Yes. You absolutely. know, the care home yeah. was not a clinical place. No, um, and it had to be family and family oriented is what it's all about. Mm. Is this where we would put our mum and dad? And the answer would be, a, yes, yes, of course. But of course, a lot of people have this perception that care homes are disgusting places that they you know, I'd never put my parents in a care home yeah. because of course the movies and you know every you, yeah, you get this yeah, this idea yeah. what was it you know so you said obviously it was family focused that really made a big impact you know knowing mm. that like yeah. I could walk and talk to any of these people yes, and I'm absolutely. a little little boy yeah. and they got little yeah. you know that's that was that's amazing why can't you scale that why is that well, not happening everywhere I have to say the majority of homes are good and you could say exactly the same with restaurants, with hotels, with any service industry. You know, I'll never go there again. That's rubbish. And they're totally, you know, I haven't got a clue what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. I, could, I would say that the majority of care homes in the UK are well run. Uh, yep, there are rogue ones. There's no question about that. But um, that's part of what happens in business. You know, some people are good at it and some people are not good at it. Some people are in there for the money and some people aren't. Um, the majority of the care home owners are carers at heart. And in fact, part of the problem is because they're not business orientated. That's why they're struggling. Interesting. And of that's course, that's the problem today is that yeah. you have to have a business model that yes, that allows you to sustain yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, what is the argument here? Because, you know, should all care homes be kind of put under kind of the NHS or put under one kind of branch? We have argued for years that it should be you know, they talk about the NHS, the care from cradle to grave, all this sort of stuff. But social care is not involved in that. And that's where it should be. That is where it should be. And the whole NHS needs a complete reform as to what the service is. I mean, uh, you know, you break your leg and you're in hospital to be fixed. You get a disease called Alzheimer's and tough, you know, go into a care home pay for it yourself or get the local authority to pay for it. And you go, well, what's this all about? Because one day you haven't got Alzheimer's and then the next day you do. Mm-hmm. If you had broken your leg, you'd had it, you'd had it seen to by the NHS. So, and it's not easy and we understand that. I mean, I spent years with the, with the politics uh, within the Hampshire, Hampshire Care Association and ironically over 20 years, I sat with no less than 13 health ministers all arguing the same thing year in, year out. And here they are still doing exactly the same thing today. So who's paying for this then? Who's, who's paying for the mum and the dads or the granddads to go and speak? It's a combination homes? of 
local authority who can't pay enough. And again, that's what puts pressure on, on care homes and private uh, um, residents who their families have to pay. And how much is is it? You know, How much per year does it cost to have your mother or father in a care home? Anything from 25 to 60,000 quid a year, depending on what scale you want to go into. Wow. You know? I mean, there are some huge, big sort of what you might class as five-star um, care homes that are mm-hmm. Charging, you know, fifty, sixty thousand quid a year. Wow! And is there any kind of insurance that that you that families can get to ensure that there are various insurance schemes, um, which are tied up always with the equity of your house and all that sort wow. of stuff? Wow! So, because I remember uh, when we were younger, you would tell them you were just warning me and Emily always about the boom, the boom in old people. You know, yeah, saying yeah. that the the population is oh, yeah. going to yeah, yeah. quadruple yeah. in size in yeah, terms yeah. of the ironically, age of the uh, one of the one of the um, issues that we argued about. Uh, way back, and this is certainly um, 15, maybe 20 years ago, we said that there is going to be a crisis starting in 2017. Ironically, funny enough, we're now in that crisis. And there was no magic about this because the demographics told you. And all the various associations up and down the country said, look, since 2017 comes, that's when the SH1 starts to hit the fan. And here we are now with the biggest social problem we've ever had. And it's going to take a very brave government with a very deep pockets to fix it. And do you think it's because they know that the younger generation can't pay for it? Because there's there's something to say that they, the Probably, older yeah. generation have had a little bit more wealth stored mm-hmm. away. But now we're at the point where literally, you know, these younger younger families yeah, are now having to burden the load. The pressure of younger, younger families... Uh, they've got enough on their plate and and I have to say see when this dreadful disease dementia and Alzheimer's creeps in this is not something that the average family can deal with I mean as you know in our care home it was 24 hour care but we had 30 odd staff to look look after all these people and it was a rotation you know three times in 24 hours so you can't expect a young family to take on mum or dad who's badly in dementia or Alzheimer's to take on 24 hours a day. It's impossible. And that needs to be addressed. And a lot of the, um, certainly the health ministers I dealt with and the politicians have got no idea how it works. No idea. I mean, it would be lovely if half of them would just spend a day in a care home just mm-hmm. to see what goes on. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really tough, I mean, it, I, I think that more than anything, it's the, the times change yeah. and the challenges become different. Mm. You know, and I think one of the biggest challenges that we maybe weren't prepared for was having to create a new society where we're not having free stuff here and, and stuff in it. And even more of a capitalist society where we have to kind of be able to look for insurance. We have mm. to look. It's tough. Right, it's it tough. Is tough. We're, we're heading but, toward an American but, but society, there, there, for sure. But there has been no innovation. And, uh, you know, over the years, w- many suggestions have been put forward about how this can all be paid for. And the government's just stick their head in the sand over this sort of thing. Yeah, it, 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 it will change. It is, it is achievable. It is achievable. And I would guess by the time you guys get to that sort of age, it will be a different a different playing field altogether. Well, hopefully we'll have some sort of uh, VR headset that we can just go over <laughs> on. So, all right, Dad, we'll, we'll get to the end of the, the show now. Yeah. Um, what I want to ask you now is is a few questions about 
about what you would have uh, asked your dad if if you were doing oh, a crikey. podcast with your dad all those years ago. What is it? What sort of advice well, you can see, you give? See, uh, um, and I would guess I'm not the exception by any means, but we never had this sort of rapport with with our parents. Uh, that just didn't exist, you know. It was it was it was very. Um, orderly in that you do this I'll order you to do and you do this and you do that and whatever so you know if, if I look back and think how many real conversations that I had with my dad probably none so that's how it is wow alright so <coughs> a little bit of advice then um, beyond <coughs> beyond the uh, the goal setting uh, I'm living in London <coughs> dad I uh, you know just started a new company Cam Talks uh, you know, I'm trying to trying to trying to make some some money in this world. How how do I focus on building that kind of wealth in uh, in this city? Um, uh, I always look upon it as your time should always be IPA. IPA. Let me write that down. IPA. Income producing producing activity activity that allows you to live and it allows you to do the things that you want to do. But if it's not productive, right, and if it doesn't relate to income, then what you do is you spend a lot of time allowing your uh, heart to get out there and do all the things. But the world is the world, and the world needs money to make it work at any level. So as long as you've got that, in, uh, and the more IPA you have, then the more time you have to spend on the things that you really love. Interesting. Right? Because if you can't pay the rent, you can't pay the food, and all the rest of it, then, you know, you're doomed. I love it. And so, um, I guess, so, so lastly, how are you, Dad? I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> I'm going for my big MRI tomorrow, but yeah, absolutely yeah. fine. Well, yeah. of course, the, the uh, you MRIs from your prostate. Yep. Uh, yeah, prostate man here. There he is. So let's let's quickly talk about this. And so, so many many years ago now, probably what thirteen years ago. Thirteen years ago, mm. you were diagnosed with prostate cancer. Yes, and I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, mm. because I thought that's it. Dad's gone. You know, I'm the man of the house now. Uh, and over the years, I I mean, I, I became so much more aware of prostate cancer. I made a documentary I about know it. You did yeah. Uh, I ended up finding out that it's not. Uh, as an, it can be aggressive but it can also be non-aggressive uh, and so the nuance of the word cancer just completely became all sort of colors and yeah and I think I, I think what happens when you're diagnosed the very word cancer just throws everybody into a turmoil and and the fear and and there was there's a lot of ignorance around it um, thankfully in my case I, I got it early and that's what it's all about and that's why I keep encouraging all these guys, my finger still got my bum. Oh, for God's sake, you know, you know, it's just ridiculous. But it, it's all about how you, you face this problem, and if you allow your negativity uh, to take take you down, and many men do, right? And I'm not saying I'm right, but I had the complete reverse. I said right, and I'd be honest, I didn't fall apart. I mean, Leslie and I didn't sit down and cry on each other's shoulders. We'd I just thought, oh, bugger this! I'll have to get find a, find some solutions to this, mm. and I became like a big sponge, and I learned and learned and learned, and I did a huge amount of research, 
uh, all the different treatments, all the different side effects, all that sort of but thing. But you also went for quite an advanced treatment, or not even advanced, a, a, a new treatment. It was uh, fairly new. I was, I was the 19th patient, I think. Wow. Uh, in, uh, in so you Beijing thought Sun. you'd just put yourself on the chopping <coughs> block and... Uh, <laughs> not, not quite. All right, not quite Doc. Yeah, um, it's called HIFU, uh, High Intensity Focused Ultrasound. Um, it's worked for me and it's worked for many, many other people. And the good news about that is it has the least side effects. Mm. So, but it's, it's one of those things, you know, what, what men have to remember is that most men will die with it and not from it. I think the sadness for me now is coming into, you know, nearly 14 years now, and the number of people that died way back then, men died, is the same as today. So I would question where where is all this money going to? You've told me about the research, but surely things should have happened in certainly 10, 15 years, and it hasn't. So tomorrow I'll be in a big MRI tank, you know, for an hour and a half, whatever it has to be. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why has not moved on, you know? Absolutely. And... Uh, I don't know, is it money, is it scientists? I have no idea, I have no idea. But it's all about keeping positive, keeping going, and, you know, keep trucking. I love it. All right, Dad, well, look, we're going to uh, we're gonna end the episode there because yep. we have a very busy day. We do. Uh, we're yep. going to go off and enjoy London together. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure we'll do another episode soon. I'd love to, Gammy. Amazing. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Cheers.